0: the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. write all of my episodes of this podcast in Scrivener. Notes and drafts may start in a Google Doc because I know a lot of keyboard shortcuts and it's easy to paste in there without having to play a lot of formatting games, but everything ends up in my Space Podcast Scrivener project. I have a heap of files in here and that's great because when I searched this project for Edmund Halley, I got a lot of hits. I have name-dropped the guy in five of my 26 previous episodes, which is a cool almost 20%. And that's not even counting all the times I promised I would make a podcast about him. <laughs> he came up in my second episode on cosmology for his work with comets, which provided evidence that things other than the planets can orbit our sun. I mentioned him in episode 6 for his Southern Star catalog, and went more in-depth in the more recent episode 25 on stars of the Southern Hemisphere, talking about his observations on the island of St. Helena. He came up in episode 12 on latitude for his work with Earth's magnetic field and his sassy prank with Isaac Newton to steal and publish their colleague John Flamsteed's star catalog data to try and inspire astronomers to determine latitude based on astronomical observations. And finally, he came up during my last episode on the transit of Venus because he proposed the whole global study of the transit to determine the scale of the solar system. So, I've had a lot to say about him already, it just hasn't been in a dedicated episode about the man, the myth, the legend. I found a single biography of Edmund Halley in my library, and I have been slogging through it for a couple weeks now. It's hard. It's not a great resource for what I'm trying to do. I like doing quick overviews of people, or talking about their contributions and wandering off on scientific tangents. This book spends the first entire chapter setting the historical context, setting the stage, and name-dropping a bunch of people I don't even know but who were Halley's contemporaries. They kept diaries. Halley didn't. A lot of the info we have about what Halley was doing at what time has to come from what his friends and colleagues said about him what legal cases he got embroiled in, or what he published. Also, there's a lot of genealogy stuff that it took me a while to realize I could skip. The book went into the parentage of his grandparents, which was super irrelevant to what I want to discuss today. Namely, what did Halley do in his time that changed the way that we do astronomy? So, first of all, I'll get it out of the way and say that Halley lived during a very pivotal time for scientific progress. Such a pivotal time, in fact, that it's called the Era of Enlightenment. Whoa! But, more interesting to me than the intellectual movement that he's now considered a part of, is the fact that he lived during a time when there were two calendars in place. And this completely fucks up the recorded dates of events in his life. I'm going to start this astronomer overview off with a tangent and talk about Julian and Gregorian calendars. This came up a long time ago in this podcast history, but calendars are human made constructs for measuring time, and they can either follow the moon in a lunar calendar, or the sun in a solar calendar, or a combination of the two, which is a lunisolar calendar. In establishing a solar calendar, it is most important that month names correspond to the physical seasons, and this consistency is made difficult because the Earth takes 365 days and about 6 hours to orbit the Sun. Those 6 hours add up, and would slowly start to throw off how our 12-month calendar relates to the seasons if we didn't add in a leap day every 4 years. Over time, July would start to slip into autumn more and more, but adding a leap day keeps it all in check. In lunar calendars, the 12 months correspond to the moon's orbit around Earth, which only takes 354 or 355 days because the moon orbits the Earth faster than the Earth orbits the Sun. Lunar calendars seem to shift more in relation to the seasons because of this. Loony solar calendars stick in leap months instead of leap days to keep their calendars in line with the seasons. There are two ways to track when to cram in that extra month. Some calendars track the seasons, and when the seasons got too far off from the months, they put in a leap year called a tropical year. Other lunisolar calendars track the constellations, and they stick in a leap year whenever the constellations get too far off from the season they're supposed to be in. This type of year is called a sidereal year. The Julian calendar was a solar calendar, and was implemented by Julius Caesar in 45 BCE. He set up a regular pattern of alternating months with 30 days and months with 31 days. He incorporated fixed rules for determining which years were leap years and instituted the leap day instead of the leap month that they were using in previous calendars in Rome. He had to do a one-time insertion of three months in 46 BCE to give the seasons a chance to catch up with the calendar, but after that, it ran for over 16 centuries worldwide and remained in place in certain parts of the world for another 300 years after that. It's actually still going in a few places, but it's pretty rare. In the first iteration of what is called the Julian calendar, the Romans had a leap year every third year instead of every fourth year. It is believed that they counted inclusively, and that's why there was a fuck-up. They went leap year, normal year, normal year, leap year. This is technically a four-year span, but includes the fourth year as a leap year. It should actually run leap year, normal, 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 leap year. Julius Caesar never caught the error because he was killed in 44 BCE, a year after his calendar went into effect. But the next emperor, Augustus, fixed it up, renamed a few months to honor Caesar and himself, and swapped some days around so that his month wasn't smaller than Caesar's. Augustus stole days from February to make this happen. This was the final Julian calendar, and the month names and the number of days in each month are what we use today. However, it had an average of 365.25 days per year. The true number of days in a year is 365.2422. This winds up to being a pretty significant error over 16 centuries because a difference of .0078 days per year comes to one day every 128 years. That's about three days every 400 years by the 1500s, that had added up to about 10 days off, which you can see reflected during Halley's time. Holidays were becoming noticeably misaligned with the seasons, and in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII decreed that 10 days would be cut from the calendar to get everything back on track. To keep the calendar and seasons aligned, Pope Gregory also decreed that century years, those ending in 00, could not be leap years unless they were evenly divisible by 400. That means that every 400 years, there would be three fewer leap years, which translates to three fewer days. This means that instead of shifting by one year every 128 years, like the Julian calendar does, the Gregorian calendar only shifts by one day every 3,030 years, which is much more manageable. Pope Gregory's third and final decree was standardizing when the start of the new year was. He set the new year to start on January 1st. Other areas had their own ideas about when the new year started. For example, England counted the new year as March 25th, but Pope Gregory standardized it in his calendar. So sometimes you'd see dates in letters from England that were February 10th, 1685, and that same date in Western Europe would have been February 20th, 1886, because of both the 10-day shift to the Gregorian calendar and the fact that the new year started in March for the British and in January for the Gregorian calendar. The Catholic world obeyed Pope Gregory's decree, and Italy, Poland, Portugal, Spain, France, Holland, and part of Belgium made the switch that very year. The following year, in 1583, Austria, the rest of Belgium, and Catholic Germany made the change. They were joined by Czechoslovakia and Catholic Switzerland in 1584, Hungary in 1587, and Transylvania in 1590. Protestant and Greek Orthodox countries took some time to transition. Protestant Germany switched in pieces throughout the 1600s. Denmark, Iceland, the rest of the Netherlands, Norway, and Protestant Switzerland switched in the year 1700. Canada, Great Britain, Ireland, and the Eastern U.S. didn't make the switch until 1752, which was after Halley died, so all of his correspondence and all of the British dates of diary entries about him and published papers are in the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian. This means his birthday is different. The day he died is different from what's written. It had a lot of effects on records of his life. They're all off by 10 or 11 days because there was a rising time cost for nations that waited to transition to the Gregorian calendar. In 1582, the correction needed was 10 days. Then, the year 1600 was a leap year in both the Julian and Gregorian calendars, so nothing changed until the year 1700, when the difference between the calendars became 11 days. This kept compounding, too. In 1800, the error was 12 days, and in 1900 it became an error of 13 days, which will last until 2100, because 2000 was divisible by 400, and therefore a leap year in both calendars. There are still places on Earth that use the Julian calendar, It is used in the Eastern Orthodox Church to calculate Easter and other feasts. The Berber people in North Africa and on Mount Athos use the Julian calendar. And Ethiopia uses the Alexandrian calendar, which is based on the Julian calendar. So, now that we know that time is an illusion, I will also say that spelling is an illusion, too. (laughs) Halley spelled his own name differently throughout his life. It can be spelled Edmund with a U or Edmund with an O. In my show notes, you'll see that I decided to go Edmund with an O because I think it's the one that I've seen the most often in my research, but either is technically correct. Halley was also spelled various ways, by him and by others. Whatever. It's all just different ways of representing sounds. Halley was born in Haggerston in East London. His recorded birth date is October 29th, which means his birth date in the Gregorian calendar is November 8th, 1656. His father, who was also Edmund Halley, was a wealthy soap maker in London. It did kind of suck to grow up in London around the time, because Halley's childhood coincided with two major citywide disasters, the Great Plague of 1665 and the Great Fire of 1666. His family probably left the city during the plague, as so many wealthy families did, and they definitely fled the city during the Great Fire, but it still burned down the school he had been attending at St. Paul's. The fire burned through London for four days, and it's why no buildings are allowed to have thatched roofs in London anymore. The reconstructed Globe Theatre had to get special permission in order to have thatch. Before it burned down, though, Halley was a good student. He was a good student after it burned down, too, but he just had to finish up his early education elsewhere. He corresponded in Latin, which was important to learn because it showed that you were smart. I'll talk about that in a second. And he was really good at math. More than just learning to do math problems, though, he also used math in practical situations such as astronomy, while he was still a schoolboy. He was really interested in the process that went into calculating information about the heavenly bodies. Halley entered Oxford College in 1673. The process of earning a degree from this college was rigorous and required a lot of Latin knowledge. At this time, scientific papers were often published in Latin because elitism was rampant. You may have noticed throughout the life of this podcast that a lot of the titles I drop are in Latin, even if they were written after the fall of the Roman Empire. These books were all technically written in New Latin, which was a revivalist version of classical Latin that was used in original, scholarly, and scientific works between 1375 and 1900 CE. The scientific names for animals and plants come from New Latin. It's also still used as the primary identifier of published works, like Copernicus's book De Revolutionibus Orbium coelestum, which translates to On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres. The dude was Polish, but publishing in Latin was the way it was done. There's also Contemporary Latin, which is used today and encompasses Church Latin, Spoken Latin, Token Latin, which is like those mottos and phrases people say, like carpe diem, or law terms like habeas corpus. And there's still academic Latin, which scholars use to publish articles in Latin. While Halley was at Oxford, he met up with John Flamsteed, whom I mentioned earlier. Flamsteed was invested in astronomy to an intense degree. He was appointed the first Astronomer Royal of England in 1675, but his mission at the time he met Halley was to construct an observatory. He was also responsible for trying to encourage a process for discovering longitude using lunar distance relations. I talked about that in my longitude episode a little bit, and I'll talk about it later this episode. Halley was Flamsteed's assistant for a while and sent him observations from Oxford while Flamsteed was making observations in Greenwich, England, the site of England's first observatory and, ultimately, the origin point of Greenwich Mean Time. Halley spent three years at Oxford, You need four years to earn your bachelors, even back then, but Halley published three papers during his final year, one that was theoretical, and two on astronomical observations that he had made. He left Oxford in order to make further observations on orders from King Charles II on the island of St. Helena, off the southwest coast of Africa in the Southern Hemisphere. He sailed there on the East India Trading Company's dime and with an assistant to help him make his observations. Halley's mission was threefold. He wanted to build a catalog of the southern stars. He wanted to observe the transit of Mercury, and he wanted to compare his lunar measurements with those of Greenwich or Paris. He was able to determine St. Helena's longitude through his solar and lunar eclipse observations, and he did compile his southern star catalog using a sextant and a pendulum clock, as well as Tycho Brahe's reference stars to orient his observations. In addition to the astronomical observations, Halley also indulged the, in the other observations he became well known for. He observed the magnetic variation on St. Helena. This helped him discuss the global magnetic field in 1692. He did make a southern star catalog that he published in 1679. He did not get a great measurement of the sun's size using the transit of Mercury. And he did get preoccupied about how the orbit of the moon worked. Because there wasn't a theory of gravity yet, Halley's preoccupation wouldn't be answered until Newton published his work, Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, in 1687. The observational works Halley performed on St. Helena from 1677 to 1678 earned him his master's degree, not just his bachelor's. So, having newly graduated with his master's degree, Halley went to Europe and met a shitload of famous people. He hung out with Johannes Hevelius and his wife Elizabeth, who were a power couple of astronomy observers in Danzig. Then he went to France and did some observations with Giovanni Cassini. With Cassini, Halley made observations of comets that Newton would later use in Book 3 of his Principia. While he was in Europe, even though no one documented it, Halley probably met with Queen Christina of Sweden, who sounds like a hell of a party person— She was highly educated and loved books, paintings, and sculptures. She made a point of speaking with any scientists who passed through Stockholm so she could discuss religion, philosophy, mathematics, and alchemy. She was really headstrong, too, and refused to marry throughout her life. There's a lot of debate about what her sexuality and gender were because she really pushed back against the social structures of the time. Halley returned from Europe in, I think, 1682, and he was married within three months to a woman named Mary Tuke. He moved to a suburb of London and proceeded to make astronomical observations regularly until 1684, when his father disappeared. Edmund Halley Sr. was found dead a month later in Kent, which is about forty miles southwest of London. It isn't clear why he died, or even if he was the victim of foul play. The author of the biography I read shows a lot of theories, none of which are relevant to astronomy or science. What is relevant is the fact that R. Edmund Halley didn't make astronomical regular observations again until 35 years later, when he was appointed Astronomer Royal. In the intervening time, Halley was still heavily involved in astronomy and publications, though it's not his own publications that were the most influential. In August of 1684, a few months after his father's body was discovered, and while he was embroiled in legal conflicts with his stepmother over the division of his father's estate, Halley got curious about proving Kepler's laws of planetary motion. (laughs) God, that's kind of a random thing to fix on, but sure. He went to Cambridge to discuss this with Isaac Newton, but found that Newton had already solved the problem with Flamsteed's assistance in calculating the orbit of the comet Kirch, but he hadn't published a solution. Newton sent Halley the proof in a short treatise called On the Motion of Bodies in an Orbit. Halley read it, loved it, saw how important it was, and rushed back to Cambridge to get Newton to publish it. Newton expanded on it extensively and turned it into his Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, which was published in 1687 at Halley's expense. The Principia was three books published in Latin. The books each state respectively. Newton's laws of motion, which are the foundation of classical mechanics, Newton's law of universal gravitation, and a derivation of Kepler's laws of planetary motion. Newton annotated and corrected his own copy of this first edition, and published an edition in 1713 and one in 1736. Between these different annotated editions, in 1728, an edition in English was also published. Some shit also went down for Halley in the years between the first publication of the Principia and the third edition. In 1703, Halley was appointed Civilian Professor of Geometry at the University of Oxford and received an honorary degree of Doctor of Laws in 1710. He also made progress in his research. Comets were a big deal to him, to everyone at the time, really. And in 1705, Halley published Synopsis Astronomica Cometicae, which used historical astronomy methods to support his hypothesis that comet sightings in 1456, 1531, 1607, and 1682 were of the same comet, which he predicted it would return in 1758. He didn't live to witness the comet's return, but when it did, the comet became known as Halley's Comet. He was kind of just nailing it in the academic world. Unfortunately, John Flamsteed, who had formerly employed him as an assistant and by all rights considered him a friend, was one of the few people who had a bad word to say about Halley. They fell out sometime between 1684 and 1686, and Flamsteed suspected Halley of surreptitiously learning of other people's work and then publishing it as his own. Of course, sometimes Halley just blatantly published other people's work without asking them. Or maybe that was just the one time with John Flamsteed's star catalog? I'll get to that in a moment. Halley had observed the transit of Mercury while he was on St. Helena in spite of the shitty weather, and he had considered the usefulness of observing transits and using the calculations to determine the different distances between objects in our solar system. He published a call to arms in 1716 asking scientists of all nationalities to unite in a global project to track a planetary transit. Because Mercury was too small to use as a good source of observation, he called on scientists to travel to different parts of the world and measure the transit of Venus in 1761 and 1769. Halley would not live to see the transit. He would have had to make it to the age of 104. But his essay asked scientists to measure the exact time and duration of the next transit of Venus, which he predicted would happen on June 6, 1761. By using precise measurements from these observations of the larger, closer planet, it would would be possible to calculate Venus's parallax. Venus's parallax would help astronomers determine how far Venus was from the Sun, and in fact, the distance of all the planets from the Sun. It worked out that way eventually, as I discussed in a previous podcast, and it was all because of Halley insisting that scientists around the world work together in this grand observational project. Halley was a fairly well-traveled scientist of his time, and he understood the difficulty of navigating the high seas when you could know at least approximately your latitude, but it was basically impossible to find your longitude reliably. A lot of people had published ideas, but Halley was frustrated by how few of them were astronomical in nature. To drum up interest in finding a solution to determining longitude using the stars, Newton and Halley stole Flamsteed's current star catalog data in 1712 and published their Pirate Edition to try and get some inspiration going on an astronomical level. Flamsteed found out, gathered up 300 of the 400 copies they'd gotten published and distributed, and burned them, utterly furious they'd published his work without his say-so. Halley had edited Flamsteed's star catalog entry in Historica Coelestis Britannica, which was a messy draft of what Flamsteed would eventually publish in 1725, I guess after he'd gotten everything as perfectly measured as he could in the 13 extra years between the illicit publishing of his star catalog and the official publishing of the Stellarum Interentium Catalogus Britannicus. The Historia Coelestis had the constellations numbered, while the, while the Stellarium Interentum did not, and these original so-called Flamsteed numbers would continue to be used in some star c- catalogs for centuries. To get back to the problem of navigation, in 1714 a petition was brought before Parliament to fund a solution to determining longitude. Parliament consulted Isaac Newton, who grossly undersold how difficult the current methods of longitude determination were, even though he was friends with the practical and well-traveled Halley, and knew that current longitude methods relied on a wing and a prayer most of the time. This all resulted in Parliament passing the Longitude Act of 1714. The act offered a first prize of 20,000 pounds for a practical, useful method that determined longitude to within half a degree. It offered 15,000 pounds for a method accurate within two-thirds of a degree, and 10,000 pounds for a method accurate within one degree, which translated to 60 nautical miles, or 68 geographical miles at the equator. Despite all their issues with each other, Halley succeeded John Flamsteed as astronomer royal. He took the position in 1720. In 1730, clockmaker John Harrison had Halley's support when he presented his longitude clock to the Board of Longitude. Halley knew the board would hate any idea that wasn't astronomical in nature, so he sent Harrison to a clockmaker who funded Harrison's research and innovations for the six years it took Harrison to build his ideal sea clock. Harrison's first clock, H1, was tested by the British Admiralty in 1736 and did amazingly well. Instead of accepting the praise he was given and potentially the award, though, Harrison asked for and received funds to further tinker with H1, working to perfect it. When the board tested the resulting H2 clock, Harrison insisted on tinkering still more, and he ended up working on H3 for almost 20 years. But that's all discussed in my podcast on longitude in episode 12, and Halley didn't live to see the outcome of Harrison's third clock. He died in 1742. And I think that will be sufficient information on Edmund Halley's contributions to astronomy. They were extensive. He lived at a very pivotal time in astronomical history, and he exerted his influence in such interesting ways. He also contributed to quite a few other scientific fields in his time. The magnetic field stuff, which I've mentioned a few times this episode, and he tried to calculate the age of Stonehenge. He was off by a lot, but it was a novel idea to try calculating the age of an ancient monument using science. For the next episode, I'd like to discuss Stephen Hawking's theories of black holes and all of that, or I could talk about famous comets now that Halley has given me such a good segue. I've gotten a couple updates on astronomy progress from friends, including the discovery of 12 new moons of Jupiter. Thanks for that, Zoe. You can always update me with new space facts by sending an ask to my Tumblr or tweeting at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you won't miss new episodes when I'm able to push them out. You could rate and review the podcast there as well. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it heats my wave. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to give you a heatwave, too. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, a timeline of the people I talked about, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off.